But this text answers the question, has God finished with Israel? And I trust by the end that you can answer that question, defend your answer, and be challenged and encouraged by the implications of the answer. So with that said, let's pray, and uh, then we'll get into the text. You know, Father, as we stand here at the start of this sermon, we ask for your help. You know, help me as the preacher to rightly uh, divide the word clearly and convincingly, and help your people to understand and apply the message you have for them. We, we humbly plead for your help. We desperately need it. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the Jews are really the ultimate paradox. They have been blessed beyond measure like nobody else. And through them the whole world has been blessed because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was a Jew. And yet they are paradoxical for a couple of reasons. Okay, number one. Despite their unique privileges and divine favor, they remain entrenched in unbelief. And number two, the topic of the Jews divides people both now and throughout history. They are a subject of divided sympathies. There have been some terrible anti-Semitic regimes throughout history and some continue up until this day. Okay, people who want the whole race exterminated. And even in the church, although not to the extremes just mentioned, there has been some horrible attitudes and strong hatred toward the Jews. Martin Luther is one such example. And this was not uncommon amongst the reformers and other notable folk throughout church history. Then there are popular theological systems. And although I'm not suggesting these theologians or their many adherents are filled with hatred toward Israel, but a key component in their belief system is that God has completely finished with Israel. Covenant theology, replacement theology, amillennial theology, postmillennial theology, all teach that God has finished with Israel. And hence, this is a vital question. Has God finished with Israel? And Paul seeks to answer this question. And it's a very logical question considering the national and individual rejection and rebellion that we've just considered in Romans 9 and 10. Okay, so what is God's plan for Israel? Do they have a role to play or is God finished with them since they have rejected Messiah? The apostle immediately answers the question. He doesn't make us wait and build up the suspense, but he poses the question on everyone's lips. Hath God cast away his people? Cast away means thrusting away as worthless forever. Is Israel finished with in the divine program? Have they been rejected? Okay, the question is stated very clearly. But the answer is even clearer. He says, God forbid. May it not be. Okay, this is a strong and emphatic response. God is not through with Israel. That was Paul's conviction. Okay, but he doesn't just leave it there. 
He gives evidence defending his position. And in fact, he spends the rest of this chapter presenting his case, and it's a very strong one. And I want to consider Paul's four pieces of evidence which prove that God has not finished with Israel, but has a future planned for them. Evidence number one, God's preservation of a remnant in Israel. This is seen in the first 10 verses. Okay, the first witness called to the stand to give evidence that God has not finished with Israel is that there was a believing remnant. And this has always been the case. In verse 1, Paul uses himself as an example. Okay, he was a Jew of the Jews. His pedigree was impressive. You can read of it in Philippians chapter 3. Okay, Paul was a hardened religious man. And he was a persecutor of the church. He, he, he strived to exterminate the cause of Christ. And yet the Lord still saved him. Okay, Paul was a living demonstration that God had not terminated his plans for Israel. As long as someone like Paul existed, there's no such thing as a total rejection of Israel. Another example is given in verses 2 to 4, and that is the prophet Elijah. Okay, do you remember the story? The poor prophet is having a bit of a pity party. He's down, he's depressed. Understandable, he's fleeing for his life. The wicked Jezebel wants his head. And it, it all looks hopeless. And at this time, Elijah, he cries out to the Lord. He's over the wicked people. And he says, Lord, I am the only godly one left. And yet the Lord assures him of a believing remnant. Okay, even in this time of great apostasy, this was an incredibly wicked time. There were 7,000. 7,000. Okay, Elijah got his arithmetic very wrong. And this illustrates that God has preserved a remnant in Israel, even amidst rank apostasy. Okay, and this was not something that the Lord did just pre-cross. Okay, this was not just an Old Testament practice, because verse 5 says there was a present remnant. You know, it's true, things were quite dark in Paul's day, but there was still a remnant. God was still working which was proof that he had not utterly forsaken Israel. Okay, and that is amazing because think about it. Despite the fact they had crucified the Messiah, they had persecuted the apostles, they had scattered the church, and yet some were still coming to Christ. In verse 5, they're referred to as the election of grace. This is not referring to national election, because that doesn't save anybody. Only the election of grace brings salvation. And there's one condition to receive this, and that's faith in Christ. This is verse 6. For salvation is election to grace on the basis of faith apart from all works. And there was a Jewish remnant who had embraced the gospel in Paul's time, and there continues to be one today. And this existence of this believing remnant is proof that God still has a plan for Israel. They are not utterly forsaken. You know, as Paul presents his case, okay, the opposing lawyer, if you like, interjects and he asks this question. Well, if the Lord has not finished with Israel like you claim, 
Why haven't more believed? And this is answered in verses 7 through to 10. Okay, Israel had not been able to obtain what it was seeking. Okay, verse 7. This is speaking of righteousness. As one writer said, the passion of the Greek was for knowledge. The pas- the, sorry, the passion for the Roman was for power. But the passion of the Jew was for righteousness. Okay, that they were seeking their own way to be made right with God. Or that they're climbing that the spiritual ladder of acceptance, assuming that their religion made them right with God. But the righteousness that they were craving, what, what they were desperately chasing, they couldn't obtain it. Only those who believed obtained righteousness. And those Jews who refused God's way of salvation and pursued their own, they were hardened in their unbelief. That's what the text tells us. Okay, since they refused the way of faith, they became insensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. They were dull, that they rejected spiritual truth. So God gave them over to a spirit of slumber. You know, just like some sicknesses can make our sense of touch insensitive, so the hearts of the Jewish nation became insensitive to Christ. But understand, God did not blind them. God did not give them deaf ears to mock them or taunt them. But this was confirming their choice of rejection. And that is why so few come to Christ. And there's a relevance and sobering warning here for all of us. There could come a time in your life where you have rejected the gospel continually. You've heard about the good news that Jesus has died for you and you can be saved, but you ignore it, you reject it, you suppress the convicting work of the Spirit. There could come a point where the Lord gives you what you want. And you won't respond to the gospel. Be careful of putting it off. Be careful of rejecting it. And for the Christian, we can ignore the convicting work of the Spirit and continue in sin. The New Testament speaks of it quenching the Spirit. And we can so harden our hearts that we continue in sin and we become unbothered by it. That's not a good place to be. And hence we need to ensure that we're sensitive and responsive to the work of the Spirit. But Paul's first piece of evidence is clear. Despite there being many Jews who were rejecting the gospel, there was a believing remnant both then and now. And the existence of a believing remnant is evidence that God is not finished with Israel. Paul's second piece of evidence brought to the witness stand is God's purpose in the rejection of Israel. Verse 11 commences with another question. And it's answered with the familiar response. God forbid, may it not be. And the question is this, have they stumbled? Okay, that's Israel. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Okay, Israel had suddenly stumbled. They had tripped. But understand, this was not final. The word fall here speaks of falling and being ruined. And perhaps an illustration is helpful. Israel was in a race. They were running strong, but then they stumbled. They tripped on a stone, and that stone was Jesus Christ. 
But this did not mean that the race was finished for them. It was not a fatal flaw. Or or to mix the metaphor, they'd been knocked down to the canvas, but they hadn't been completely knocked out. Okay, so Israel has not fallen in the sense of being removed from God's plans and purposes. They've only been set aside for a time. And understand that God has a plan that he is accomplishing through stumbling Israel. Verse 11 continues that salvation to the Gentiles, okay, that, that came because of their fall. Now, an important interpretive point here is the word fall. Okay, this is a different Greek word. Paul has just said, God forbid to them falling, but now he says they have fallen. Okay, but this second Greek term, it speaks of wrongdoing, okay, a trespass or offense. And according to verse 20, this offense was their unbelief. And yet this particular fall, it was not fatal. It was not total. But notice what happened. Verse 11, Israel's fall resulted in salvation coming to the Gentiles. Now, that doesn't mean that it caused Gentiles to be saved, nor does it mean that Gentiles couldn't be saved prior to Israel's fall. But rather their rejection gave more opportunities for the gospel to spread amongst the Gentiles. And this is illustrated right throughout the book of Acts. The Jews often persecuted the early church. What happened as a result? Christians left Jerusalem. It spread throughout the known world. And several times throughout the book of Acts, Luke records that Jewish rejection of the gospel. It results in a deliberate focus shift to evangelizing Gentiles. Acts 18 verses 5 and 6 is one such example. And hence the Jews' rejection facilitated the expansion of the gospel amongst the Gentiles, and you and I are the beneficiary of that. Notice what's next in verse 11. In God's plan, the spread of the gospel amongst the Gentiles was meant to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Make them jealous, which would result in them embracing the gospel. And the idea seems to be that they didn't want the gospel, but they don't want the Gentiles to possess it either. It's a bit like with children. Okay, this can happen with my children. You can offer something to one child and they'll say no. But then I offer it to their sibling and all of a sudden that first child who said no has had a you know, rapid change of mind and they desperately want it because their sibling now has it. Okay, that's the idea. And the Lord is endeavoring to use envy as a means of drawing Israel back to himself. And according to verses 13 and 14, this is a part of Paul's ministry strategy. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he was hoping that his ministry would provoke, would stir up his kinsmen and cause them to believe. And understand that this whole concept necessitates that the Lord has not finished with them. Okay, why would the Lord have this plan of bringing Israel back, trying to provoke them to jealousy if he had finished with them? Okay, why worry about provoking them to jealousy if there's nothing for them to come? Okay, that makes no sense if they have no future. But it makes perfect sense. 
if he has not finished with them yet. Now the future for Israel is continued to be proved in verse 12. Okay, the Gentiles have been incredibly blessed because of the fall of Israel. Okay, their rejection of the gospel has resulted in great riches coming to the Gentiles. Okay, Israel's loss has been the Gentiles' gain. But notice how verse 12 concludes. It says, how much more their fullness. So this assumes that God has not finished with them. Okay, their fullness, this speaks of a time of restoration. Okay, and Paul's point, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the world has been blessed by Israel's rejection of the gospel, how much greater will be the blessing of their reception of the gospel? And this demands that God has not finished with Israel. And this same point is made in verse 15. It parallels verse 12. And the casting away of Israel in verse 15. This is a different Greek term compared to verse 1. And here it means to be put on the shelf for now, okay, to be set aside for a time. And this has resulted in the ministry of reconciliation spreading throughout the Gentile world. And since the world has been enriched by Israel's rejection of the gospel, what unfathomable blessings are in store for the world when Israel receives the gospel? And Paul looks forward to that day. And God has not lost sight of that day. In fact, he's bringing it to pass through the Gentiles embracing the gospel. This is his purpose, which means he is not finished with Israel. A third witness is called to give evidence, and that is God's power with regard to Israel. This is seen in verses 16 to 24. Now, this third piece of evidence requires us to understand the illustrations used by Paul. Like a master teacher, he employs object lessons, and we're introduced to them in verse 16. He mentions the first fruits and the lump. And for us, we're probably like, okay, what's that talking about? Well, it's speaking of a practice recorded in Numbers 15, 17 to 21. And the priest would take some of the dough from a larger batch. Okay, you've got a larger batch, the priest would take a smaller portion and offer it to the Lord. And the argument is that since the first fruits, okay, since that lump is holy or set apart to the Lord, so is the rest of the lump that it came from. And the point made from this illustration is that since Abraham is the first fruits, okay, he was set apart for God, this must be true of the people coming from him. Okay, they're set apart to a position of privilege before God, which again establishes that God is not finished with Israel. Paul uses a second illustration, and this is his primary focus. Okay, it is an olive tree. Okay, Abraham is the root, and the nation of Israel were the branches. Okay, so, so try and picture this, this beautiful olive tree. Abraham is the root. Israel represent the branches. But those in unbelief, verse 20, had been cut off from the tree. So the Lord takes out his axe and removes the branches, removing them from spiritual and religious blessings and privileges. And he grafts in wild olive branches 
representing Gentiles into the tree. Okay, and this illustrates how Gentiles came to share in these spiritual blessings. Now, what, what's the go with grafting? Okay, what, what's that talking about? Okay, olive trees can live for hundreds of years, but the older they get, the less productive they become. And in order to increase productivity, old branches are removed and then new branches are grafted into the tree with the new branches becoming part of the old tree. Okay, so that's the process of grafting. Now, what's interesting is that whatever process Paul has in mind here in Romans 11, we're told in verse 24 that it's contrary to nature. Okay, so whatever he's talking about is against the standard practice. So what does he have in mind? Now, from what I've read, I'm not an expert of olive tree grafting, but the usual practice was for good branches to be grafted into wild trees. But wild branches were not grafted into good trees. Okay? It didn't work. And hence the apostle in this image, okay, in going against the standard practice of the time, Okay, he's not showing a lack of understanding of agricultural practices. Okay, he's not ignorant, but rather what he's doing, okay, what, what he describes here, his intention is to magnify the grace and mercy of God in grafting in Gentiles, and it reveals the power of God in accomplishing it. Okay, the Lord has done something amazing. He's done something contrary to nature. He has had the power to bring in wild branches into a good tree. And that didn't happen in Israel. It didn't work. And since the Lord had the power to include Gentiles, he certainly possesses the power to restore Israel. Okay, because they're good branches. Grafting them back into a good tree is consistent with nature. And God certainly possesses the power to do it. Notice verse 23. God is able to graft them in again. Okay, the condition being belief. And then verse 24. God could do what's contrary to nature. Hence the logical conclusion. And this is how the verse ends. How much more shall these, which be the natural branches, Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree? His point being, you know, the Lord has done the hard part. He's done the impossible in grafting in Gentiles. Bringing back Israel to the tree is easy in comparison. And this is more evidence that the Lord is not finished with Israel. Okay, if he could graft in wild branches like you and me, how much more a natural branch? That's the third evidence. But before we move on, there's an important warning issued, and that's the danger of Gentiles boasting and bragging. And this is actually repeated several times throughout this portion of Scripture. Okay, so this is a point the Apostle is really trying to drum in. The danger of boasting is seen in verse 18. The challenge is issued in verse 20 to don't be high-minded. That means don't be proud, don't be arrogant. And then there's a very strong and sobering warning in verses 21 and 22. Now there was a natural and obvious tendency for Gentiles to despise the Jews, okay, to despise those who have been cut from the tree. And this was compounded for the Gentiles in Rome because the Jews were not viewed favorably in that city. But Paul reminds them, okay, reminds the Gentiles, you've got nothing to brag about. 
Okay, Gentiles are not superior. In fact, they owe their spiritual existence to Israel, not the other way around. Gentiles have nothing to be proud and arrogant about and hence shouldn't despise or ridicule the Jews. And then there's a very strong warning in verses 21 and 22, and it speaks of being cut off. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, it's important to remember, this is not speaking about the church. This doesn't have salvation in mind, because that would contradict Romans chapter 8. The warning is for Gentiles. If they're filled with religious pride, they can be cut off. Paul's point, God doesn't play favorites. He cut off the Jews, he'll cut off the Gentiles. The Jews were cut off from the spiritual and religious privileges. That's what's in mind. And the same thing can happen to the Gentiles. They, as a nation, can be cut off from the spiritual privileges flowing from the olive tree. So these verses need to be understood as religious privilege, not eternal salvation. And the subject is Jew and Gentile, not the church. Okay, it's possible for the Gentiles to forfeit their privileged position and their blessings just like the Jews. And and this is unfolding before us. It's really a prophetic word. And the time is coming when the Jews will be grafted back in on account of their own belief. And God is certainly able, okay, he's powerful enough to graft back in natural branches because he grafted in the wild branches, the Gentiles, which is contrary to nature. This is the third evidence. The fourth evidence called as a witness is God's promise of restoration for Israel. As he makes his case, the apostle saves his strongest evidence for last. He wants to finish with a bang. And the greatest proof that God has not finished with Israel is that he has made promises to them that have not been fulfilled. He has unconditional covenants that at this point in time have unfulfilled elements And since God keeps his promises, Israel must have a future. Notice in verse 27, God has a covenant with them. There's a signed contract. And verse 29 makes the point that God's promises will be kept. God will honor his covenants. That there has to be a time when God will fulfill his covenant promises. Okay, understand the Abrahamic covenant, it was made with Israel, not Gentiles, not the church. It was an unconditional covenant. Okay, it didn't depend on their faithfulness. And it's an everlasting covenant. Okay, no time limit was placed on it. And since it has unfulfilled elements, this ensures Israel's future. And this is Paul's crowning argument. Notice how he presents it. In verse 25, he talks of a mystery. Now in the Bible, a mystery speaks of something that was previously hidden or unknown, but is now revealed. Okay, that the church is referred to as a mystery in the book of Ephesians. Now the question is, what's the mystery in Romans 11? Well, it contains two components. Both are revealed in verse 25. The first being... 
the spiritual blindness that happened in part to Israel. And notice that it says in part or partial, meaning this blindness is temporary. One day their eyes will be open. One day they will embrace Christ. When? Well, this is the second component of the mystery. It says, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Okay, Israel being set apart will only last until the fullness of the Gentiles is complete. And at that time, God will again turn his attention to Israel. And we're told in verse 26 that all Israel will be saved. This does not mean every single Jew in existence without exception, but rather Israel as a whole. When will this happen? When Messiah returns. Okay, and this tells us that although Israel has forfeited their national religious privileges for the time being, the day will come when God reactivates the promises and fulfills them. Okay, God has to keep his promises. There's a time coming when spiritual blindness will be removed, when they accept and embrace Jesus Christ, and there will be a glorious restoration. My friend, God will keep his covenant promises. God does not change his mind, and hence, Israel will be restored. God has not finished with them. So there are four pieces of evidence that answer the question, has God finished with Israel? And I trust you can see from the Bible that God has not finished with them. They have a future. But how does this apply to us? Okay, what are the practical implications? Okay, well, number one, a Christian should never be anti-Semitic. Okay, understand that it, it's inconsistent with Scripture to hate the Jews. We, we ought not to mock and ridicule Israel. Okay, where we should stand against and radically oppose all such attitudes and actions. Because it's completely inconsistent with the Bible to hate Jews. Because Jesus is a Jew. And those throughout church history who have adopted such attitudes, they are very wrong. Very wrong. And may such attitudes never exist in our hearts. Now this is not calling for a blind support of Israel. Okay, taking their side on absolutely everything, no matter what. Okay, thinking that they can't do wrong. Okay, we need to be discerning. There is a danger there too. But we do need to guard against any hatred toward them. Okay, it, may, it may be subtle, it may be obvious, but it needs to be eradicated. Number two, Romans 11 demands a premillennial interpretation of prophecy. Paul makes it clear that God has not finished with Israel. Okay, nor does the apostle teach that the church is the new Israel. Okay, the church hasn't replaced Israel. They're distinct entities. And God has made covenant promises with Israel. And they need to be fulfilled with Israel. Which demands they have a future. Okay, we as the church may benefit from some of the spiritual aspects of the covenant. Okay, but the physical promises aren't for us. That they're for Israel. Hence, they need to have a future because there's unfulfilled elements. 
And this is a very strong support for a premillennial interpretation of prophecy. Because other approaches cast Israel aside. that They believe that the Lord has finished with Israel, replacing it with the church. But the fact that God has not finished with Israel, that the fact that he's only set them aside for a time, as Romans 11 teaches, and the fact that the Abrahamic covenant hasn't been fulfilled, this demands that we interpret prophecy through a premillennial lens. Number three, we need to be thinking about Jewish evangelism. Okay, there are movements throughout our world who refuse to evangelize Jews. Okay, and that's a grave mistake. One missionary made this point. A subtle form of anti-Semitism is to deny Jewish people a hearing of the gospel and not care about their eternal destiny. Okay, the church should be just as aggressive evangelizing Jews as we are Gentiles. In fact, we should not exclude any people from evangelism on the grounds of race. You know, I realize that we as a church are limited in resources. We can't reach everybody. But it would be good for us to think about our missionary endeavors with Jews. And maybe there's someone here this morning who you're thinking about missions work. You have a burden for the lost. You're thinking about becoming a missionary. Maybe you've never told anyone, but it's on your heart. Have you thought about the Jews? They need to hear the gospel. Would you be willing to reach them? Now, as a church, we desire to expand our missionary portfolio, and perhaps we should consider Israel. Wouldn't it be wonderful to partner with someone in reaching the Jews? Okay, please be in prayer about that matter. And in our day-to-day lives, don't be scared of sharing the gospel with Jews. For they too need to hear the gospel. And number four, is your life drawing people to Christ? Okay, in our text we learn that it's God's plan for the Gentiles... To make the Jews jealous, which then draws them to Christ. And we can apply this even more broadly. And it is this that I want to make the primary point of application. Does our life, the way that we treat others, the way that we act, the way that we love our spouse, the way that we raise our children, our work ethic, our morals, the way... We deal with trouble, the way we respond with mistreatment, our levels of joy, our love for fellow Christians. Does our life, does your life, does my life make Christianity attractive? Does our life make Christianity attractive? Do others look at you and think they have something that I don't have and I must have it? There's a joy There's a love, there's a graciousness, there's a holiness that's so appealing. Is our life a magnet that draws people to Jesus and the gospel? Or is our life more like a repellent? Does your life give Jesus positive or negative advertising? You know, as people look at you and I as individuals... And as people look at our church corporately, do we make Christianity attractive? 
Are people attracted by the quality of our life and our obvious love that we have for God and others? My friend, we're called to show the Jews and to show everybody the attractiveness of the Christian way. What what does our life say about Jesus? What does our life say about the gospel? Okay, where, where can you improve? Okay, where do you need to repent and change? With God's help, how can we make more people think, you know, Brendan, he's got something that I don't have. And I need to find out what it is because I want to have it. How how can we improve the advertising of Jesus and the gospel that inevitably comes out from our life? Okay, understand, we are advertising Jesus and the gospel. Okay, it's whether it's positive or whether it's negative. That's the question that I want us to think about as individuals. That's a question that I want us to think about as a church. Okay, what does your life say about Jesus? But that ends our study of Romans chapter 11. And and this is a monumental moment for us because together we have climbed the theological Mount Everest. Okay, we've completed the doctrinal section of Romans. For 11 chapters, we've considered the glory of the gospel. And now at the top of the mountain, as we gaze out at all of this glorious gospel truth of justification, sanctification, glorification, the work of the Spirit, God's plan for Israel, as we see all of this, how should we respond? Well, Paul shows us. Okay, before he moves to practical application, this starts in Romans 12. What does he do? Well, he falls down in worship. Okay, his theology led to doxology. And these always need to be together. Okay, that they can't be separated. And what we learn here is that there should be no theology without doxology. Okay, there's something flawed with a purely academic interest in God. Okay, true knowledge of God, true knowledge of the gospel ought to lead to worship and adoration. This is how Paul closed the chapter. As, as he stood back and as he gazed upon the glories of God and the gospel, he, he breaks out in spontaneous praise he launches into this benediction of worship and he glorifies the lord for his plan of redemption and i trust that our study so far has not just been an academic exercise now i trust it's not you know in your head now you understand justification a little better i do hope that is the case but i trust it has thrilled your soul that, that, that it moves you to awe and adoration because theology ought to lead to worship. And as we stand on the top of the mountain, as we gaze out at the glory of the gospel, may our hearts be filled with awe. May, may we be struck and overcome with a desire to worship. Because my friend, that is the only appropriate response. Look at Paul's response. It's this, we'll close. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counsellor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you uh, for the, the book of Romans. Thank you that we've been able to, to take a lot of time working through this uh, doctrinal section. And Lord, may this not just be head knowledge for us, may it thrill our souls. And our uh, Lord, thank you today that we could focus particularly on Israel. And we thank you for the plan uh, that you have uh, for them. So Lord, help us to, to know that, help us to understand that. And uh, may the, the practical implications change how we live our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.